Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to an exciting new podcast series. It's called The Post-Progressive Inquiry, and it's a co-production of The Daily Evolver and the Institute for Cultural Evolution. My co-host for this podcast is Steve McIntosh, Executive Director of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Steve, in addition to being my good buddy and next-door neighbor, is one of the leading integral philosophers in the world and author of several terrific books on integral theory, including Evolution's Purpose and Developmental Politics. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you and uh, Thomas Bjorkman, our distinguished guest, uh, for the inaugural flight of our podcast series, Post-Progressive Inquiries. Um, our goal, it's worth stating on this podcast, is to uh, speak to the leaders of the next great phase of human history. In other words, those of us who are, who are charting the edge of emergence, and there's many names for this emergent edge. Uh, we're, we're calling it post-progressive, but other names include metamodernism, integralism, uh, post-postmodernism, right? Who knows what it'll eventually be called. But post-progressive, at least, it hints at what we're after. That is, we don't consider a post-progressive perspective to be anti-progressive. What we're trying to do with this series and with this movement is uh, identify what comes next after progressivism. What, you know, progressivism has made some important achievements um, and we wanna see what might even go beyond that, what could be higher than that. So we're trying to transcend and include. And um, I think all of us, that's how we identify each other at this leading edge. And so um, it's again, a pleasure to be with uh, both of you. Yeah, so let me introduce our first guest. It's Thomas Bjorkman who calls himself an applied philosopher and social entrepreneur. He's coming to us live from beautiful Stockholm, Sweden. He is the creator of a number of evolutionary projects, including the Oak Island Center, Eskaret Center, an Esalen type retreat center on an island in Sweden. It sounds fabulous. He is involved in, with a number of media platforms, which we may get him to talk about. And he is the author of several books, including The Market Myth, The World We Create, From God to Market, and The Nordic Secret, which he co-authored with Lenny Rachel Anderson, and which was the topic of a very laudatory David Brooks column in the New York Times a few months ago. I remember reading about it. So I'm really happy to have you with us today, Thomas, and welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Steve. It's... Uh... Great to be on your show. So, Steve, why don't you start us off? Sure, happy to. Um, so, let me just say how impressed I was reading at least the two books, The Nordic Secret and The World We Create. I think one of the main focuses of our dialogue today, I hope we can focus on The World We Create, because that uh, really makes a significant uh, contribution to this emerging perspective that we're all about. But let me begin by just asking you uh, in a general way to tell us, uh, tell us the focus of your work right now. I mean, you know, we write books. It takes a while for them to get published. Yeah. <laughs> things move on. So, so tell us what you're really passionate about um, in, in the moment now. Yeah. So, so uh, perhaps I could also take the opportunity to, to uh, tell you and, and our listeners a little bit about my background. Uh, so um, uh, I studied mathematics and physics at uh, university. 
and was already back then very fascinated about complex adaptive systems and self-organization and emergence and, and all of that. But then spent um, uh, 20, 25 years in the business world uh, as a business entrepreneur, uh, starting a lot of different uh, companies and ventures in IT, property and in banking. Uh, started a banking business in Scandinavia in 1990 and sold that business uh, 10 years later to one of the largest Swiss banks. And uh, when I did that, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, take a pause and to think about what to do with the second half of my life. And I decided that I wanted to set up a foundation in Sweden that Jeff already mentioned, the Ekraret Foundation the Oak Island Foundation, and really dedicate this um, foundation and also my writing work to look into the um, relationship between our personal inner growth and societal change. And th that is still the main focus of my activities, and uh, th that is what I'm passionate about. And I should say that my passion is both very practical, so that's why I call myself a social entrepreneur. I'm, I'm constantly sort of uh, starting new projects and, uh, and initiatives, and that is what I'm good at, and, and I like uh, doing that. Uh, but I'm also interested from a more philosophical, theoretical perspective of actually how this uh, world is um, functioning and how we are functioning internally, our psychology and our in, how our internal worlds and psychology relate to the outside world and to, to sociology. So th that field is what's interesting me. And uh, all of my three books that you mentioned, Jeff, uh, is in this area about the inner world and, and the outer world and how we are now sort of rediscovering again the importance of our inner world. So, Thomas, how do you see the movement forward and how can we best as evolutionaries, thought leaders, whatever, be helping it along? Mm. Um, is it about nurturing a leading edge? Is it about embracing the whole? Of course, it's both. But how, how do you see it in terms of where we actually place the lever to mm. be most helpful yeah. in moving things along? Um, and, and I think that very much depends on uh, where we think that we are right now in the evolution of, of humanity and the evolution of, of civilization. And when, when I started uh, thinking, writing and acting in, in this area about 10 years ago, and even just five years ago, when, when I was talking about, for example, the need for inner transformation, uh, a lot of my friends uh, would comment things like, uh, Thomas, you always labeled yourself as an atheist and a non-believer. Now you're talking about the need for radical inner transformation. Have you become religious now or something? And when I was speaking about the need for a radical societal shift, a radical societal transformation, people would say things like, Thomas, you, you used to be a banker and a capitalist. Have you become a communist or a socialist or something now, talking about radical societal transformation? And then I would hear, up until just a couple of years ago, 
many, many of my intellectual uh, friends, and I'm sure you, you experienced the same, saying that, Thomas, take it a little bit easy. We, we have our institutions. We, we have the market and we have democracy. And, and it is a bumpy road, but if we just give it a little bit time, things will sort themselves out. But I don't hear that any longer. Uh, not at least in, in my, my smaller bubble of intellectuals in, in London and in, uh, in Stockholm, for example. Uh, I think there is a rising awareness, at least again am amongst um, intellectuals, that we cannot any longer just rely on the existing societal systems, like the present implementation of the market, and the present implementation of democracy. Uh, I believe and hope that both the market and democracy are very efficient institutions and I hope that we will still be relying on them in, in 10, 20, 50 years. But that will certainly be in, in a different kind of implementation of, of these um, wonderful uh, ideas. So when you start to realize that uh, we have come to a point in the evolution of at least the Western civilization, which is more or less our global civilization now, uh, where you cannot any longer improve uh, the world by just incremental improvements. Then you realize that you have really come to one of these points that going back again to uh, complexity theory and the theory of complex adaptive systems, then you've come to what some people call a bifurcation point or a phase shift point where, where the system will not be able to adjust any further by incremental improvement. You really come to a point where you are either facing a breakdown of the system, a breakdown of complexity in the system or a breakthrough of the system, where the system steps up in organization to a more complex, but often more also elegant or even more beautiful way of, of organization. And um, I think to answer your question, it's very much depending on how large you think that this shift that we are now facing uh, will, will be, how deep this shift will be. And I could elaborate that also. Great. So, okay. The, the, some of the things that I'd love to explore with you is uh, this, this emergence, this taking responsibility for human evolution, the, the, yeah. the realization that our civilization is in many ways unsustainable, but yeah. that many of the voices within progressivism, they're trying to correct that unsustainability, uh, you know, have, have, they're, they're good at rejecting what came before, but not always as good at, creating a space of synthesis or, or greater inclusion. Um, and I, the, the exciting thing is that it seems that here in the United States, there are many lines of development that are attempting to stake out this higher ground. Like the way we put it is that there's very little common ground left between the political factions of American society. So we're, we're trying to stake out higher ground and yeah. determine what that looks like. Yeah. And that's obviously happening in Europe too. I mean, it's very edifying to see you all uh, emerging, you know, in your own way. It's a kind of a distinctly European uh, 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 version of this next phase of development. Hmm. So I'm interested in how you see the differences between American 
post-progressive integral, you know, European meta-modern integral, whatever yeah. terms we we uh, we might assign. But how do you see some of the differences, strengths, and weaknesses? Any yeah. any have about that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I have a yeah. follow-up. Yeah. So so first of all, before commenting on that, I think it's important to uh, um, remember that if we believe, as I do, that this transformation that we are in right now uh, will be a deep transformation and that it will uh, entail uh, the emergence of completely new properties of this system. Um, and this is nothing new. I mean, this has happened many, many times uh, throughout history. The last time we went through uh, such a deep transformation in the Western uh, civilization was during the Enlightenment when we went from a, a dogmatic religious worldview uh, and a feudal uh, societal system into a rationalistic scientific worldview and um, a, a modern industrial society. But in those uh, shifts, new emergent properties have always risen. And uh, I think that that is what we are going to see here now as well. So if we are going through an emergent process, then per definition, we cannot know what will be the outcome of this process. If it manages to, to uh, organize itself on, on a, again, higher, more complex, more elegant, and perhaps even more beautiful uh, way of organization. So we cannot really manage this transition. We, we cannot really plan the transition. And I think that is one of the main limitations of many of, of the progressive movements that we see right now, both in the US and in, in Europe, that there is still a belief that we can actually plan and manage our way into the new society and even intimidate uh, ourselves and each other in, 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 into a new society. And, and I, I don't think that is possible. I don't think that is possible. So then should we then just give up and, and trust the systems, the market and democracy and all of that to, to take us that? No, I think that's evident that we cannot do that uh, either. So then going back again to, to complex system science and looking generally on complex systems that are in a phase transition like this or a, at a bifurcation point, what could one generally say about at least increasing the odds for a positive outcome of the emergence, increase the odds of a breakthrough rather than a breakdown? And if you look at, at complex adaptive systems everywhere, I mean, physical systems, uh, biological systems, living systems, but also cultural systems, then you could say that um, one important factor in, su in supporting a positive emergence is for the components of the system to develop capacities for more complex interaction and re relating to each other. And from this individual ability to relate in more complex ways, that ability will then have emergent effects on the system. So translating that to our human cultural system, 
that would mean that the best thing we could do today uh, to increase the odds is to help us individuals evolve capacities for more complex and deeper uh, relating, uh, not only to each other, but relating to ourselves in more complex and deeper way, relating to each other in more complex and deeper way, relating to society and relating to the planet and our environment in deeper and more complex ways. And that is what I mean by uh, consciousness development or development of our mind and, um, and our heart and our, our body to, to deepen these capacities for, uh, for relation. And the good news is, of course, that first of all, this is nothing new. This is what many of our world religions have been on to for thousands of years and indigenous traditions and, and other. Um, but for me, coming more from a scientific background, um, the best news for me is that contemporary adult uh, developmental psychology uh, clearly shows that these capacities for, for relating, understanding, sense-making, compassion, um, it's not something that uh, we are given with uh, uh, from birth with a, with a certain um, amount of these capacities, but all these capacities or most of these capacities, uh, we are actually able to um, uh, cultivate and to deepen throughout our life. And that this is a process that goes on throughout our whole lives and that this process can either be hindered by the environment or supported by uh, the, the environment. And uh, that is why I put so much emphasis uh, in both my writing and in my project on supporting these kinds of uh, development of these capacities. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I love that. And it's one of the ways that I think about it in, 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 in an integral world, we have this concept of evolution happens in first person that is consciousness, what we're actually able to be aware of. Yeah. Second person, how we relate with each other. And there, if we look at history, the way we relate to each other has evolved radically from stage to stage. Of course. And of course, third person, you know, the actual systems of the world and industrialization and from agrarian and all of that good stuff. And, and sometimes I think that um, I, I want to notice at least, and I want to hear what you think about this, that a lot of this is happening under its own power in the sense of just the internet and just yeah. the ways, in the, even the ugly ways that we are f engaging with each other and fighting and checking yeah. each other and getting e in each other's hair and um, all of the conflicts and that sort of thing, that there's a fruitfulness to that that I think we want to notice. Yeah. So it's sort of the wild, crazy aspects of it. And then there's this other side of it, which you're involved with specifically. And, and I, I downloaded your app last oh, night. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> 29K, wow. it's called. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I, I love it. Say, I, and, I, and I should say it's not my app. It, I it's know. A, you're, you're, it, it's an initiative between my foundation in Stockholm and another foundation called the Northern Lights Foundation, Nordfrian, who is a technology for good foundation. Yeah. And we have created this nonprofit, open source, co-created uh, digital platform to support this uh, evolution of these capacities or the evolution of consciousness or yes. whatever you would call it. Yeah, wonderful. 
Thank yeah. you. For and I love it because you're creating a, an app where people can to get, get together. And if I'll actually ask you to describe it, but it's, it's a very um, well-engineered, intentional way of moving the ball forward in this first and second person. And so I yeah. want to note it. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So uh, first of all, I should, I should mention that I'm, I'm a, a strong believer in uh, the, the power of places and the, the power of nature and the power in the authentic in real life meeting. And, and that's of course why uh, my foundation has established our own retreat center that you described um, on an island uh, two hours outside of, of Stockholm. But meeting in person, doing personal development retreats out in nature is, again, I think the absolutely best way to do this. But it is expensive and it doesn't scale. So the hypothesis for this project was, can we at least try to use um, a digital platform to a little bit both democratize personal inner growth and make it available for 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 persons who might not have the financial means or other ways of participating in, in real life events. And could we actually uh, test and evaluate the, the power of the digital world in this respect? And um, uh, to our surprise, and we've been on this project for more than three years now, so we have had the chance to do a lot of evaluation, we find that um, uh, the digital person-to-person -person meetings that we facilitate on this platform. And um, a lot of the growth and development, of course, takes place in these virtual meetings that we try to, where we try to recreate the sharing circles that we and other, of course, personal development organizations have been using for, for, for ages. And, and we find that that wor works surprisingly well and in some respects, perhaps even better than in, in real life. We find that at least some of our participants say that they feel safer to open up and to be vulnerable in a digital meeting than they would be actually uh, uh, in a room physically, uh, with the other people physically, uh, physical presence. So um, yeah, so we are, we, we, we are very happy about this uh, development. And as I said, we try here to be a little bit of a Wikipedia platform. So it's open source, it's nonprofit, and we are inviting uh, researchers from all over the world and practitioners to help us to upload interventions that have scientific uh, backing, that they actually are helpful in developing these uh, uh, relational capacities that uh, we just talked about. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And again, the app is called 29K. I yeah. encourage you to check it out. Uh, and that's, of course, 29,000. And, and that is the number of days you can hope to have in your life if you live a, a long life. Oh. And our tagline is make them all matter. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Great. Well, so I have another inquiry for you. And that is, um, as we all know, consciousness and culture co-evolve. You know, ultimately, yeah. uh, people can evolve their consciousness, but in order for that to stick and, and for it to become sticky so that we can yeah. um, recruit other people, garden for emergence, you know, as, as you were framing yeah. it. Um, and also culture can either support this 
Yeah, I mean, it's one thing is that with the culture, you're starting from a certain level. We, we do not need to start every generation from Stone Age level. We are starting a, we are starting a little bit higher, hopefully. Yeah, even hopefully. If it, even yeah. if it doesn't feel like that nowadays, but hopefully right. Right. Uh, we, we are starting uh, every generation a little bit, a little bit higher. Um, so, so in that respect, culture helps. But then culture is also sort of very much, um, if you're not going to one of these... Um, sort of pro participating in one of these programs or, or re retreats, then it's really the culture that is supporting you in this evolution or stopping you or hindering you in this evolution. So exactly. some, some cultures can be more uh, supportive than, than other cultures to this life well, journey. That, that's exactly kind of get the uh, place of my point of that. Here in America, at least, and I imagine to a certain extent in Europe as well, one of the things that we're working on is the relationship between this emerging uh, post-progressive culture, uh, you know, our label for it, and, and the previous progressive culture, right? Yeah. Most people who are attracted to this way of seeing things are coming from a center of gravity and progressive culture, although not yeah. all. Yeah. And yet we find that many people who are participating in that culture or attempting to show up and be part of this emerging new culture yeah. are still very much rooted in progressive culture. Yeah. And yeah. while some see it as a seamless continuum, you know, we're just kind mm -hmm. of a maturing form of progressivism. We're also noticing the need for a, a bit of a dialectical separation, right? A little bit of pushing off and distinguishing between yeah. progressivism and post-progressivism. And I'd just love you to speak to that a little bit about how, how does this new culture we're uh, guarding for, how does that relate to, uh, to progressivism and, and you know, what, are the, what are the affinities and what are the conflicts? Mm, yeah. So, so first of all, I, I, I think that um, what I'm arguing, arguing for um, might even be called hyper progressiveness or, or or something like that because the the, the progressive as, as that word indicates is something that is moving forward yeah uh, and i th and i think that we really need to move forward and i'm i'm even calling myself a radical in in the right uh, term of uh, uh, and the right sense of that term, meaning that we really have to go to the roots of the problem. And that we even might be so progressive and so radical that we are talking about a complete societal transformation. So, so ha having said that, the, the, the new synthesis, I think, from my view, is super uh, progressive and super radical. But why do I still think that many of the aspects that we see in, in today's radical movement um, is stuck? And, and also in looking at the previous sort of progressive culture, the progressive cultures of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and 90s, perhaps, that, that that also is a bit stuck, um, or was stuck or those of us who come from that field, why we do not recognize ourselves really in, in, in today's progressiveness. And uh, um, 
the progressiveness of the, of the 60s, 70s and the 80s, that that was very much a progressiveness, still a progressive movement, still within the modern or the modernist um, worldview. Uh, it being incremental and still a, a very, um, I, in some way, idealistic and ideological project. And, and certainly with a linear um, the theory of, of change. Rooted a lot in, in, uh, in, sci in science, political science like Marxism and, and, and uh, those parts. And when we understood from the postmodern philosophers that this was really a limiting perspective including the Marxist sort of scientific understanding of, of history and the progress of technology and society. Um, then we entered into this uh, postmodern space where you have a very, um, very strong and very effective critique of the, the modern way of, of seeing the world and pointing out the limitations of the modern worldview. Also very correctly pointing at uh, the hidden power structures in, in, in society and the important role of, of culture and of, and of language. But at the same time, the more extreme forms of postmodernist thinking um, deconstructs everything and, and you end up in a very uh, relativistic space where you are really deconstructing all value hierarchies, all hierarchies, power hierarchies, developmental hierarchies, value hierarchies. And when you do that, you, you lose both as an individual, but also as a society, you lose your compass. And I argue in my book, uh, The World We Create, that this sort of value vacuum, this lack of compass in the postmodern uh, world, in postmodern academia, amongst postmodern intellectuals, has actually made it possible for, for the market to take this very strong role now in society, almost as, if not our new God, it is certainly our only meta-narrative that is accepted everywhere in the world. And with social media and the fragmentation of the discussion, I would say today that the market is really the only meta-narrative that is, is global and that is globally somehow accepted. And that is, of course, good news when it comes to the parts where the market is, is a good mechanism, a good self-organizing system to, to, to deliver directions. But in many of the most important aspects of, of the world, and certainly in our more existential questions, there, of course, the, the, the market uh, can't help us at all. And that has also led to the effect that, and Wilbur has pointed out this many times, and I mean, this is one of the fundamental insights in, in integral philosophy, that uh, deconstructing power hierarchies is of course good. You, you, sh you should see through them and you should know that many of the things that science or the market or other language structures that we are putting in place is just a way of hiding uh, power structures, or, or at least making the power structures uh, obscure 
so that we are not aware of them. But when you also uh, attack developmental hierarchies, then you have a problem. And if you can't separate power hierarchies, domination hierarchies, from developmental hierarchies, then uh, you enter into a, a big problem. And I think that's where we see one of the big problems with the uh, progressive movements today, that if you don't realize the developmental hierarchy, you don't realize that culture can evolve and that we as individual can evolve, then it's very easy to get stuck on one of these lower developmental levels. And we all, of course, have many different models to describe our personal lifelong development. And as I usually say, all models are wrong, but, but some are useful, at least in some contexts. So if we should use some models, we should realize that they are all crude generalizations and they are all really wrong. Uh, but some can be, be useful. Well, a good model is one that lasts long enough to get you to the next one. Exactly. Yeah. Ex exactly. So uh, if we, for example, are um, talking in, uh, speaking in the language of Professor Robert Keegan, the Harvard developmental um, psychologist, one, one of our most uh, recognized contemporary uh, academics in, in, the air, in the area, uh, he, he, he is pointing out that a very important step that we can take as, as adults, as young adults or later on in life, is going from being in what he calls a socialized mind, where we take our direction, our values, but also our worth from an outside authority, from our group or from a dogmatic religion or from an authoritarian leader. And while we are at that level of consciousness, we, we really need that outside guidance. But then later on in life, we can develop uh, our connection to our own inner compass and become less dependent on outside authority and more becoming authors of our own lives in a deeper sense. And, and that level of, of mind and meaning making he calls a self-authoring mind. So from a socialized mind to a self-authoring mind. And if you can't see the need for this development, and then of course you have levels above this as well, then it's very easy that you get stuck in your bubbles where you are very dependent on uh, that nobody uh, thinks in any, in any different way that if somebody is challenging your values or worldview, they are really challenging your inner self. You can't really at that level separate your values and your worldview from yourself. And then it might even start to become important to protect that so you don't get, so you don't get offended. And then you sort of end up in a bubble of, of political uh, correctness with, with, with no challenging forces. And of course, every theory of inner development, I think every, stresses that in a for inner development to happen, you really need to have two things. Um, you, you need to have some, some sort of, uh, you need to feel 
secure. Okay, because if you are frightened, if you are driven by fear, then your system shuts down. And of course, through evolution, if the tiger was hunting you, then of course that was not a time for you for inner growth. That that was just a time for you to run. <laughs> okay, so I, I think we have a strong evolutionary explanation that that when we are in fear, then we rely on what we know is, has been working before for us. So then we are shutting down. But then just being safe, just being in a safe bubble, then of course nothing happens. Because you need this safe, this safe environment in order to let yourself be challenged and let your feelings be challenged, let your worldview be, be challenged, let your hidden assumptions be be challenged. And I think this understanding for the need of challenging uh, perspectives is today totally, totally uh, lacking in, in many parts of, of the progressive movement. And then you, you are really, really stuck then both in the way that you are stuck in your own bubble, you are stuck at the developmental level where, where you are, and also the culture in your en environment is also stuck where it is. So you, you, you are losing this uh, de developmental movement that is so important both for uh, our, our own minds, but also for our ideas and for uh, society and culture, both the smallest culture environment in, for example, the university campuses or the societal culture in, in, in society at, at large. Um, so, for me, the main problem with both the previous progressive movement and the present mainstream progressive movement or the new progressive movement uh, are that, they, that those movements are stuck in previous worldviews. The first one stuck in the, post, in the modern worldview and uh, uh, the other one in the postmodern worldview. And the next level of progressive movement must, of course, uh, again, then come from a post-postmodern perspective or an integral perspective or a metamodern perspective or whatever we want to call that worldview that I, th I think we have all written about and spoken about and Ken Wilber has elaborated along with many other people. So, so I think, yeah. I mean, yeah, e even Habermas and very traditional uh, uh, European and other philosophers are, are on to something here that we, we, we need to move, on, move beyond uh, post-modernity. But oh. not rejecting, not rejecting, but rather, as you said, uh, include the positive sides and then transcend to yeah. the worldview. And um, right on. And, you know, how, however we formulate it or whatever we call it, um, an integral, at least, we see it as an integration, not just of the modern rationality, postmodern sensitivity, if you will, but also pre-modern or non-rational stages yeah. of myth yeah. and religion. Yeah. And I notice in your writing, you talk about the imaginal as yeah. being a you know, something that needs to be brought forth into this new integration. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, so I think it's very important that we, we, 
become co conscious about um, the how dependent we are on what we, shall we call it societal culture in a broad sense and um, if when we are in in one of these deep societal transitions again depending on how deep it will be we we will need new tools to understand these deeper layers both the deeper layers in society and the deeper layers in ourselves and we also need to look deeper back into history to see uh, uh, what is going on and, and what has happened. We need to understand what happened during the Enlightenment period, but also going back perhaps as, as far back as to the Axial Age, some 500 years before Christ, when all the main world religions uh, were first uh, con conceived. Um, and that might have been an even, even deeper transformation of, of, of humanity, the axial uh, transformation. And um, uh, when, when we have these uh, understandings of, of deep history, of deep psychology, that's why Jungian psychology, for example, starts to become interesting again. We are starting to talk about and discover the archetypes of our, of our mind, very deep, deep evolutional evolutional residuals in, in the bottom of our, of, of our mind and how, how they play a role in, in myths and in the stories and how we are so dependent on these characters and myth to holding our society together. Even in, mod, even in modernity, we, we have these myths that are holding society together, but we haven't really understood the value of them because the myths are not true in any scientific way, but they, have, they hold deep truths ab about humanity in, in, in some way. But then in the same way, we need to also in sociology go below this more shallow surface sociology that is helping us to to understand how society develops from one year to another or perhaps from one decade to, to another into deep sociology. And if you look into deep sociology, you are even looking below culture and ideology. And then you come to concepts like our collective imaginary that you were uh, uh, referring to. And, and that is really all the deeper hidden assumptions, metaphors, understandings, thought models that we all take for granted and even underpins our culture and uh, our, our institutions and becoming aware of the importance of these collective imaginaries and understanding how they evolve and how they are human creations. But they are so natural to us that this the standard metaphor is that our collective imaginary is like uh, is to us like water is to the fish i mean we're just swimming in it we we can't see it and we we need to make a real effort to just become um, aware of it but once we become aware of it then of course uh, that increases our freedom to also be able to change it but a bit scary thing here with the collective imaginary uh, just like many other of our phenomena in our socially constructed world, is that th they meet us individuals as some sort of objective truth. 
whereas we on a collective level we have freedom to change them so this was very high high, high level and very abstract so could i give could i give some example to make this a little bit more more uh, uh, understandable uh, well the first thing you need to uh, you need to understand here really is that there is a difference and I think Wilbur is very clear that when we talk about the four quadrants or the three worlds that you were talking about, that there is a difference between the natural world and our socially constructed world. And that we humans have not really through evolution got any natural feelings, a natural way of understanding the difference. And, and that is a bit of a problem to us. So example, for me as an individual, I am in, in, the, in today's society completely dependent on air, oxygen to breathe, and money to survive. And for me as an individual, I think I could even say that I'm equally dependent on oxygen and, and money. I can't do without them. Uh, so that's for me, I, I, as an individual, I, I, just, I just have to accept my, my dependence on oxygen and, and money. And it doesn't help me as an individual to realize that money is just a social construct and could be completely different. Because when I'm standing there in, in, the, in the supermarket and checking out, if I tell the cashier that the money that he or she is asking me for is just a social construct and we don't need to bother about it and the police will probably come. But then if we look at this on a collective level, even if we got the whole of humanity together and decided that we as humanity, we would not like to be dependent on oxygen any longer. We couldn't do anything about that. Even as a collective, we have to accept our dependence on, on oxygen. But of course, if we got the whole of humanity together or even just a, a nation state together and said that we, we don't want to be dependent on money any longer, we want to find another way to allocate the goods and services in society, then of course money could be gone tomorrow. But the sad thing is that in, in many times in our, our political world, we seem to confuse these things. So for example, the, the planetary boundaries of our planet, we, we think that they are up for negotiation, whereas the market forces we just have to obey, when it's of course the opposite. But in order to change this collective imaginary and this social reality, we need to be able to, we need to act collectively. And for that, we need collective sense-making. And I think that that is exactly what we see today breaking down. The collective sense-making and the collective agency, our ability to, to use this collective uh, freedom. And then, of course, we end up just becoming collective prisoners, all of us prisoners in a dysfunctional uh, collective imaginary. And I think that's where, where we are right now. Sure. Well, thank you. That was an excellent um, description of this idea of the imaginary, which overlaps somewhat with the idea of worldviews, which is kind of the yeah, construct. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But the, 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 maybe the deeper. World, maybe it's the, got the more archetypes is, in there. The, yeah, yeah, the worldview is part. Our worldview is part of our collective imaginary. Sure. Yeah. But 
So just to ask you another question here, um, one of the exciting things uh, that I see about what's emerging in Europe and what's emerging here is that there seems to be so many similarities, right? Even though, you know, we're reading each other to a degree, we, we're dealing with different life conditions, right? Here in the United States, the, the social fabric is just really torn. We're hyper-polarized. Uh, see some of that in Europe, but not as much. Which, uh, uh, yeah, it, it starts States. in Europe as well. Absolutely. So, yeah. so one of the things that um, I'd like you to speak on is, at least for now, as, as we're gardening for the emergence of this next step in culture, you know, for the, yeah. for the, for the near term, even if this form of culture is to emerge robustly, it'll still be distinguishable from other major blocks of culture, right? We're not going to get the entire society to wake up in, in one fell swoop. And so as we, as we work out this culture and, and um, uh, notice and, and discuss the agreements and disagreements between, you know, our transatlantic emergence here, one of the things I'd love to, to, to have you talk about is the agreements that, that we're trying to stake out that define this culture. In other words, what, what do, it, it, there's clearly a degree of pluralism. We're not all going to believe exactly the same thing. I mean, there's inevitably going to be differences, but it's not going to be as much, as, as much of an anything goes um, uh, uh, cultural agreement structure like we see at earlier levels. So, for example, just to take one area of agreement, um, uh, secularism and metaphysical pluralism. I'm just uh, love you to get speak a little bit about how you see this space, you know, how much room is there for differences? How, how, how secular is it? How, what does it mean to be post-secular? Just, you know, give us some of your thinking around that. Yeah, yeah. No, um. In other words, Thomas, have you become religious? <laughs> and, 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 and the answer is yes. And, uh, okay, good. Yeah, yes, and, right and uh, I, I, I have... Uh, um, uh, I, I have understood the, the, the um, evolutionary aspects of religion and that the religion can be interpreted on, on, on many different um, uh, levels of, uh, of complexity and, and understanding. And uh, of course, on, on the more basic levels of of religion i'm i'm totally still uh, uh, an atheist in in the meaning that i do not believe in any way in, in an intervening god or of, of 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 any sorts and i don't think that we can find any uh, or all our truths or perhaps some truths but not all our truths in a 2000 year old book or a, uh, or a, a thousand year old um, tradition Having said that, I, I just mentioned that we need to look into deep history, deep psychology, and deep sociology in a way that we haven't done the last 50 years. I mean, these subjects were even a bit suspicious in academia up until very, very recently. In the same way, I'm seeing, and, and I'm not the only one pointing this out, that both philosophy and theology is now again starting to become relevant. And that philosophy is not just something for philosophers at Oxford, Cambridge, or Harvard to, to be dealing with, but it actually becomes important even for us more normal hum humans to understand and navigate these deep transitions. And if these transitions become deep enough, 
And if it really goes all the way down or all the way up to our meta-narrative, the, the, that some sociologists even call our sacred canopy, the, out, the outer limits of our social understanding. The horizon of transcendence. As yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, exactly. If you are going to contemplate that, if you're going to try to transcend that or, or change it or critique it, and that's why it's a sacred canopy because it's, it's almost impossible to critique it from within the system. And by definition, you can't move outside the system. Th then you come to the th uh, theological questions because the theology is ultimately, at least on a higher level of complexity and consciousness about exactly those outer limits of our human uh, uh, existence, the, the human being. So yes, I, I become at least a little bit more interested in <laughs> theology nowadays than I was, than I was um, 20 years uh, uh, ago. But please remind me again the, the question. I lost the question. Oh, sure. Well, in other words, let me just frame it another way. We want to um, tune in to how you all are thinking over there. And we want to, you know, we want to sort of get a synchronicity going between our, our, our uh, transatlantic forms of emergence. And we want to have a degree of pluralism among yes, our, our yes, different- Yes, 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 yes. Okay, that, that's it. To, I got it now. That. We, we eschew magical thinking. We don't want to confuse myths for literal no. reality. We want to transcend religious uh, conceptions of the world. But we also want to create a, a, a cultural space that does retain a degree of spiritual pluralism well, absolutely. and allow for different, different yeah, perspectives on what's real. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm back on track. So, um, um, I certainly think that uh, the more complex uh, our world becomes and the deeper we, we try to understand uh, our world, the more perspectives of the world we need. We shouldn't confuse that with a postmodern myth that all perspectives of the world are equally valid. Uh, but I think that in any given situation, every perspective is adding something new. But of course, given, uh, given what problem you are examining, some perspectives have more explanatory values than other. So the post-postmodern way of looking at it becomes more complicated. Because in the modern way, then it's just science and, and reason. In the postmodern, it's any way goes e equally well. In the post-postmodern, then you have to start discerning and valuing these different perspectives. And of course, that's much, much more demanding of you than the, the, the two previous. So having said that, I believe that we, that we, that we need to be moving into a truly uh, multicultural world with, with uh, many different uh, worldviews and perspectives and understandings uh, of the, the world. Uh, it's not just from an epistemological point of view, from understanding the world, it's also from an evolutionary point of view. E evolution thrives on diversity. Uh, again, any complex dynamic system, evolution, whatever, if, if, you, if you have a monoculture, there is no evolution. You need to have differenti differentiation for evolution to, to happen. Having said all of that, um, at the same time, um, we are living in a global civilization. 
we are all interconnected. We have this freedom to change these fundamental aspects of our civilization, uh, our collective imaginary. We can change institutions like the market, even the free market, as I argue in, in uh, the market myth, can be constructed in many different uh, ways. And the way of the present market is more or less just a historical uh, uh, random walk process that have led us here. Um, if we are going to exercise that collective freedom, we need to be able to exercise collective agency. And for that, we need collective sense-making. And if we are all just living in our own different cultural bubbles, with our own worldviews and with uh, our own language, then we will not be able to do any collective sense-making. So, so that is the paradox. We need the multicultural, we need many, many perspectives, we need different ways of understanding and seeing the world, but, but also we, we need a common language and a common understanding for these perspectives to really cross-fertilize each other and help in a collective sense-making process. And exactly, and exactly how we will rec reconcile this. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I just know that going either way, saying total multiculturalism, that's, that's fine. That will just end in, in fragmentation, no understanding, possibly war and environmental disaster. But also the other way around, saying that now we need a world civilization and we need a world government and we need one worldview, perhaps a more advanced worldview, even an integral worldview, but we need to <laughs> implement this all over the world for us to make sense of this and take humanity forward. I think that's also disaster. So, so somewhere in the middle here. And, and I wonder, and, and here I'm perhaps a little bit different from some parts of the progressive movements today and the environmental movements that are, that in many cases are, are anti-technology. Um, um, of, of course, as you hinted here before, Jeff, the, what is one of the factors that has been driving this cultural evolution and the need for cultural evolution and is also pushing us now to, to really step up as humanity is, of course, technological evolution. And the enlightenment was perhaps driven by the printing press. Uh, and now we have the internet and the internet is making all of this both possible, but also necessary. Um, and in the same way, we see artificial intelligence, we see network technology, we see uh, blockchain technology. Perhaps technology will somehow help us to, to be able to reconcile sort of the local differentiated pluralism with some sort of uh, uh, global uh, sense-making and, and agency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we gotta try to integrate that polarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, by having uh, uh, artificial intelligence and blockchain technology sort of accumulate ideas and uh, yeah. Uh, other things, and in that way, uh, develop new forms of democracy that has never before been possible, not even to imagine. That could be a very, could be a global democracy, but on the same time with very uh, strong subsidiary and uh, 
principles that no decision should be taken on a higher level than necessary and leaving a lot of diversity and freedom for local things to happen everywhere. But where we need global coordination, uh, that we perhaps could be able to uh, uh, achieve that through sure, some, push power some, down as much as possible. But yeah, yeah. But, but still, but still, degree. where where we need to have the power um, yeah. to agree on these overall principles. So, if we should have global trade, how should that be organized? If we want to protect the planet, how do we? How could we uh, have rules that would govern the whole system? But, but still be possible for different implementation in different places, depending on local yeah. culture and uh, worldviews and, and other things. Well, and, 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 and it's here, sorry, I just must say one more sentence. It's here where, where I see technology driving this emergence. And we can already now see what these new technologies might be able to, to achieve in five or 10 years. But five or 10 years from now, these technologies will have evolved so much that we cannot even dream about today what, what will be possible in, in, in 10 years. So that, that's why I also believe that we will have to trust the process somehow, yeah. but increase the, our wisdom, increase our individual wisdom and our collective wisdom to t make the best use of these technologies. Well, along those lines, uh, you said something, uh, few minutes ago, Thomas, that caught my ear. And, uh, and that is that Sweden is following the US into polarization. polarization. And we're, we're, we're used to following you. Yeah, you're the yeah. ones who were a step half a step or a step ahead of us. Uh, yeah, you know, from yeah. An integral perspective. Um, we still are. So what's going we on? We still are and, and, and more than a step. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's true for Sweden. I, I um, I might have been referring to, to Europe in, in, in general. Uh, I, I have my main, uh, I'm in Stockholm at the moment, but I have my main residence in, in London and in the UK, we are certainly seeing this uh, uh, polarization rising rapidly. Uh, but I shouldn't deny that it's happening also in, 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 in the Scandinavian uh, countries. So um, whatever we had here in Scandinavia, I think we are losing it a, a little bit. And, that is uh, what uh, my co, my my friend and uh, colleague Lena Anderson and and I are elaborating in our book, The Nordic Secret, that you were referring to, uh, where where we uh, are talking about how this understanding of the relationship between our inner personal development and societal change, how that understanding was widespread amongst intellectuals and politicians in all the Scandinavian countries 100 or 150 years ago. And they got these ideas of our inner consciousness development and the development of culture from the German idealist philosophers like Schiller, Goethe, Herder, uh, von Humboldt, and uh, Hegel. Uh, and um, those philosophers, they all argued against the Enlightenment philosophers' view of our mind as a rational machine, this sort of fixed consciousness. No, they said, no, our mind is an organic evolving system that can develop throughout life, and that that process of consciousness development can be supported. And it's important to support that consciousness throughout life, both for the individuals 
for the individuals to, to be able to manage in a more complex world and to thrive, but also, and not the least, for society and for the evolution of society. And, and this, um, these philosophers were read by almost all intellectuals in Scandinavia back then. German was the first language and the academic language in, in the Scandinavian countries back then. So what they did was that they actually uh, started a, a program for broad scale consciousness development in society by starting a lot of retreat centers. I usually, jokingly sometimes call them. And by the turn of the last century, year 1900, there were hundreds, 100 centers in Denmark, 75 in Norway, and 150 in Sweden, where young adults later on with full state subsidy could spend six months in retreat with the expressed aim of taking this step that I was referring uh, to before from a socialized mind to start becoming more self-authoring, to stop being dependent on an outside authority, on religion or a dogmatic leader, and start to become authors, both of your own life, but also then conscious co-creators of the new society. And back then, of course, it was the creation of, of modernity. And when this program for consciousness development was at its height, almost exactly 100 years ago, then 10% of each young generation in Scandinavia, in Denmark, in Norway, and in Sweden. A little bit different programs, but uh, uh, the extent was, was the same. Then 10% of each young generation could participate in one of these six months programs. And of course, this created what we today would call a critical mass or a tipping point in, in, in society. But then we forgot about this. After the Second World War, we stopped reading the the German uh, philosophers, and we all became positivists and, and uh, scientists, and we forgot about the importance of, of the inner world. So we still see the positive effects of uh, um, this on society. And you were referring to David Brooks' article in, in the New York Times, where he elaborates a bit on this. Uh, so we still see uh, the effects of this and the positive effects in Scandinavia, but we are also losing it. And today in Scandinavia, if, if you speak about the importance of consciousness development, that, that to the general person, even the general intellectual, sounds quite new age and esoteric or even spiritual or religious. And, and nothing really for us to, to be focusing hmm. on in, a, in the political world. Wow. But I think that's changing. I think yeah. that's changing. I mean, it comes from this realization that, that something fundamental needs to, uh, to shift. And more and more people are starting to realize that this shift is not just going to need to happen outside, that this shift might even start with ourselves, might be an internal shift that is needed first. And so do you see your center on Oak Island, which we uh, yep. talked about a little bit? I mean, do yep. you see that as modeled a little bit on these centers from... Uh, no, no, no the, the, the interesting thing is that, that uh, I was not aware of this uh, uh, Scandinavian history. And that's why we call it the Nordic secret. I mean, it's even a secret for, for, for our, our, ourselves because we have so completely forgotten about it. We know that these ex centers ex existed and many of them still exist. But today, we, we look upon them also from a historical perspective as adult educational centers. We, we, we lost the notion that they were really formed 
yes, to a certain extent for, for education and learning about new technologies and organizing society and things like that. But the main focus was on the more vertical aspects of our inner, uh, inner, inner development. And that aspect has been completely uh, forgotten. So no, I didn't know about this and I didn't even know about Esalen when, when I, uh, when I uh, st started this center, but I soon real very soon realized that I was reinventing the wheel because people pointed me to SLN and I've been to SLN many times and enjoyed their, uh, their programs and their beautiful nature that I certainly believe is transformative just by itself. Uh, but also that I was reinventing the wheel a little bit just looking back at the Scandinavian history, that this understanding of the importance of inner development for societal change, that that was really back, back, back in our DNA in Scandinavia. And I, I was not aware of that until Lena and I, five years ago, started to do the research for, for this book. Yeah. Oh. I just I have a question, just sort of an up-to-the-minute question about uh, what's going on in Sweden. How are you folks doing with COVID these days? Oh, that's interesting. That's, yeah. that, that, that's interesting. I know you were you know, sort of do, running your own sort of project. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah a, a, a little bit. And I think uh, you could easily... Um, um, understand this from this developmental perspective that we've been that we've been talking about. Um, these programs and, and other things in Scandinavia ha has uh, made it possible for us to still have a society that is very much run on trust. So, so we actually still trust our government that, 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 that the government is at least trying to do the best for us. And I think the government still trusts the majority of uh, uh, our citizens. And I think that this re rather radical or different response to the COVID situation is only work, has only been working, and it has been working, I must say, it has been working uh, in, in Sweden because of this existence of trust in both directions. And it wouldn't be easy to replicate um, some, somewhere else. But I, I do, did notice during the spring the difference in response between, for example, London and Stockholm, and that the compliance in Stockholm by the population just based on recommendations. Stay, stay, stay home, don't go out unnecessary, don't go to restaurants, try to work from home the compliance to those just recommendations were better in Stockholm than the compliance to the legal uh, uh, requirements in, in London. So uh, uh, yeah, I, th I think oh. this worked. Th oh. Then at the same time, we had, we had very vulnerable systems as well. Uh, so we did have a lot of, uh, of unnecessary death in our, in our um, care centers for old people and, 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 and so on. But that was more due to those systems being uh, uh, too uh, fragile. They were too efficiently uh, op optimized and were, were working when the system was not under stress. But as soon as the system came under stress, there was absolutely no slack in the systems that could absorb any of that. And, and, and that made it possible for the virus to, to penetrate those institutions. And, and that had a devastating effect, but no, no, uh, 
legal interventions could have helped there. Yeah. Well, fascinating. And yeah. Yeah. So really... there we have the difference between different cultures. Yes. And, and of course, it also proves that trust, as most business people know, trust is also efficient. It's, dif it's difficult in the market to put a value on trust. Um, and trust is a collective good. So it, it isn't automatically generated in the market. But if you have trust, then of course you can operate much, much more efficiently between business partners or suppliers and, and, and everything. And of course, also in a society. If you, you have move the speed trust. of trust, as yeah. uh, Covey Jr. puts it. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, no um, absolutely. So I, so I think trust is an underrated concept and we should ask ourselves, how, how can we increase trust? And of course, when we are talking about these, um, making it possible for us to relate in, in, in deeper ways to each other and to society in order for this emergence to happen, then trust, creating trust, uh, facilitating the emergence of trust might be an important factor for this also to, uh, to happen. Yeah, fantastic. Well, um, I really uh, appreciate nice. what you bring into the party. Thomas. Steve, any closing questions or comments? Well, I just want to say how you know, grateful I am for your work and how pleased I am to see this way of thinking emerging strongly uh, you yeah. know, in Europe and yeah. the affinities that we have. It's very confirmatory you know, that we're not here by ourselves, that, that other people are, are recognizing the same things that we are and yeah. um, looking forward to further collaborations in the future. Yeah, and, and I think that... Uh, if the previous shifts have been based on different geographical areas, of course, we are still very much in our different geographical areas. Some things are happening in the US, some things in Europe, other things in Asia. But I think that this awakening that, that is happening right now is actually a global phenomenon. And, and that uh, internet is making it possible for this awakening to happen. So it's right now a very, very thin <laughs> layer of awakening that is happening, but it's happening globally and we are all in contact with, e with each other. Of course, we could have more contact with, uh, with South America, Africa, Asia. It's mainly in my bubble, uh, European US and even European uh, West Coast American uh, bubble, a little bit East Coast uh, as well. But I'm, I'm very um, certain that uh, th through uh, internet and the new communication that this uh, will be a global process that we will that we will see thank you thomas bjorkman and steve and everybody and we'll see you next time